Okay, we're still in Acts 16, looking at the birth of the church in Philippi. So if you can turn there. Last week we had the good stuff. This week we have the not quite as good stuff. So uh, there's good stuff to it, but uh, it's tougher, shall we say. We've got uh, 16 through 24 today. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you a way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Father, we know that the grass withers and the flowers fade but the Word of God endures forever. And may it be the Word that we remember of this morning, that we might hold the living Word, Jesus, in high esteem, growing in our delight in Him. Grant us a hunger for that which endures, lessening our desire for that which withers and fades and matters little. In the name of Jesus, the enduring and eternal Word, who became flesh for us and for our salvation, we pray. Amen. When I was growing up, I lived about a mile off of the highway. And uh, when you got to the highway, there was the Nashua Mall. Okay, And I spent many uh, an hour with my friends terrorizing security people at the Nashua Mall, uh, doing a variety of things. Uh, playing video games that uh, only exist now in vintage places, um, as well as enjoying lime rickies and doing other kinds of stuff. Well, years later, when I had uh, a job <laughs> and I had become a Christian, uh, one day I had gotten off the road and onto the highway, and there was a sign for the Nashua Mall, and there was some sort of convention of fortune tellers that was going to be at the Nashua Mall. I was a young Christian, and... Um, there were some dubious, impo- dubious influences in some of my theology at that point in time. But I remember uh, saying, 
the Lord rebuke you as I drove past the sign. Didn't think much of it until the next day when I saw that the thunderstorm from the night before had destroyed the sign. I don't stand here before you claiming that I produced this, okay? (laughs) But there is that question, was this a real spiritual conflict upon which the sign was the uh, unfortunate recipient, or whether this was merely coincidence of a storm meeting said sign that happened to talk about fortune tellers? But there is a real conflict, Whether or not that uh, breaking of the sign was a part of that conflict, there is a very real spiritual conflict that exists in our world today. And we see a glimpse of this conflict here in Acts 16, where the gospel now meets opposition. And that opposition is threefold. It is from the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's right here. But let us not think that that is something for back then. Let us not think that it is something that is produced by those superstitious people from a long time ago, as sometimes people are prone to do. But that these are real things that happen to real people, and they happen today as well. The big idea this morning has been changed For those of you who pay attention to these things, when we're clear about the gospel, we often suffer for Jesus. When we are clear about the gospel, we often suffer for Jesus. We see first off that the demons distort the message of Jesus. Paul's uh, initial success in Philippi is about to be met with opposition and obstruction. Remember last week they went to the place of prayer by the by the side of the river because uh, there may or may not have been a synagogue in town. And so they, they go there and they meet these women and they teach them about Jesus. And uh, one of the women named Lydia is converted and uh, she's baptized, she and her household, and they inv- she invites them to come and stay at her house and that becomes sort of the base of operations for the gospel in the midst of this Roman colony by the name of Philippi. We see that the good of news of Jesus, however, though he is the savior of sinners, it is not welcome news by the God of this world, the evil one. And so the very next thing that we read about is, once again, they're going to the place of prayer, but there's someone who stops them on the way. We read about the fact that they are met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. And so this young girl is doubly enslaved. She's owned by a number of men as a physical slave. But she's also enslaved spiritually because she has a spirit of divination. It's odd because the word, the Greek word there is python. <laughs> okay? We wouldn't normally think of snakes uh, as, as part of divination, but we probably ought to. Uh, but this is not referring to the serpent in the garden, although it, I believe it is a reflection of the serpent in the garden. But 
the Python spirit was connected to the Oracle of Delphi. And if you're familiar with uh, Homer and his work, uh, if you're familiar with uh, the movie The 300, perhaps, uh, the Oracle of Delphi was uh, seen to have a spirit of divination by which it told the future. It was previously on the island of uh, Pythos, and the myths around it had uh, Apollo driving out the twin serpents, or pythons, from that particular place so that he could have his oracle, Apollos' oracle, uh, upon that place, or on that island. And it was, if you wanted to know the future about uh, important events, uh, you know, whether you should go to war or not, uh, you would go to the Oracle of Delphi. And so, people would go to this girl who had that spirit of divination in the hopes of finding out the future to know whether or not they should undergo business or uh, who they should marry, these sorts of things. And this was a very profitable, profitable business, not for the young girl, but of course, but for her owners, of which there were at least two, if not more. Okay? Think of it this way. If you're Biff in Back to the Future, and you discover the almanac that Marty McFly had left behind from the future. You now have the capability of betting on the winning World Series and Super Bowl teams and putting your money in the best stocks and knowing when to pull money out of those stocks. You indeed can amass a fortune as Goofy Biff did in those movies. And so going to the oracle, this girl was seen as something similar to having the inside scoop so that you yourself can make wise, profitable sorts of decisions. We should not be surprised by this. Okay. Uh, sometimes we struggle with uh, a worldview that eliminates the supernatural, and maybe we let Jesus in. Okay, uh, But the world of the Bible, and therefore our world, uh, includes the reality of unclean spirits, the demonic. Okay. We see in 1 Timothy 4, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. So Paul understood part of the, a lot more of the reality of spiritual warfare than we tend to. This girl with the python spirit does bring us back to that tempting tree and the serpent that encouraged Eve to partake of it. We have within us a desire to have knowledge of the future without God. That's really what this is about. It's about knowing the future apart from knowing God, trusting God. And so here we see the greatness of the sin of the people of Philippi. Mediums today are probably some combination of uh, parlor tricks, um, confidence games, but there may be times that they may be also involving the demonic. 
Okay, we shouldn't want to rule that out. We shouldn't uh, think of uh, mediums and spiritualists as some sort of uh, innocent fun that we can partake of. We have a former neighbor in Florida who recently recounted their trip to the the medium on the internet, and uh, it was ironic because the medium told them to go to church. So <laughs> that was kind of strange. Maybe it's just at a different church, (laughs) one that would discourage the use of uh, mediums. But there's something that goes on there. There's more than just good guessing at times. Now, what was going on was that this slave girl would follow them on the way outside of the city, shouting very loudly for other people to hear, These men are servants of the Most High God. Okay? Now, let's pause for a second. If you were to hear that, you would probably understand this, uh, similar to what happened when Jesus met people filled with demons and they declared uh, that uh, Jesus was son of the Most High God. Okay? You would hear Most High and you would think, the God, our God. Yahweh, okay? But where are they? They're in Philippi. They're not in Jerusalem. They're not in Judea. And so what might be really clear to you was not going to be really clear to the people that they were hearing this message. It's confused further by the fact that not only are they in Philippi, but they have found inscriptions referring to Zeus the Most High God. Okay? So the people who are hearing this are not hearing uh, about the message of Yahweh. They are understanding this as, oh, Zeus has a message. These are servants of Zeus. Zeus, of course, uh, that word Most High, that phrase can refer to uh, rank, the highest God, and of course Zeus was in the Greek pantheon the highest God in their in their pantheon, uh, and as a result he lived on the highest mountain, the most high mountain is Olympus. Okay, so their understanding and hearing this is basically a distortion of the truth. She's not the, she is not declaring the truth, but she's declaring it in a way that people will not understand it properly, and in a way that sort of discredits these messengers, because it's setting up a false expectation. Because once they mention the name of Jesus, then people, well, wait a minute, what are you talking about? (laughs) I thought you were a messenger of Zeus. And so the, the, the demonic here is inviting either pluralism or distorting the reality of the truth. And so this demon tells the truth in a way, but distorts the truth for its audience. Think of it this way. Uh, When I was younger, it would be interesting, I, I loved albums. Okay, I liked to look at liner notes in albums. And it would be interesting because many of them would say, thanks to God. How do you understand that? 
Part of it is how you, what you bring to it, the assumption, assumptions you make. And some of those assumptions you make may be false. We see the same sort of thing. Every sort of uh, award ceremony was more popular in the 80s and 90s. Uh, I don't know about now because I don't watch them anymore. But uh, what, do, what did a lot of people do? I'd like to thank God. It is generic. It is bland. It is unspecific. And you don't know to whom they are actually referring. That's what's going on. Okay. These servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you, probably a better translation is a way of salvation because the article is not present. This was common. They would speak of a way of deliverance within that, that, that culture of Philippi and this was sort of a common claim. Nothing special, nothing about the uniqueness about Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life that we are familiar with from the Gospels. And so she kept coming upon them. She kept distracting them. She kept disturbing them. And here's where I feel a strong sense of identity with Paul because he was annoyed. (laughs) Those are the moments I feel like the Apostle Paul. (laughs) He's annoyed by this. He's troubled by this. He's disturbed by this. Okay? Sometimes there's that saying that all publicity is good publicity. Paul would disagree. Because he saw this publicity as distracting them and uh, confusing the audience to which they speak. And so we see that instead of being vague and unclear, Paul begins to be very clear about the God that he served. Because he said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ. Paul is not invoking his own authority in this command, but he is invoking the authority of Jesus Christ. He's declaring the identity of the God Most High whom he served when he does this. He's saying the God Most High is not Zeus. He is saying it is Jesus, the Messiah. That is the God Most High whom I serve. The God Most High, who later he would tell the Philippians, once became a servant or a slave and who was obedient even unto death in order to free people like this girl from their bondage to evil spirits who would triumph over evil upon the cross. And so Paul is, in a sense, engaging in some form of spiritual warfare, even as he ushers this command in the name of Jesus Christ. He's declaring that, or commanding that this unclean spirit come out of this particular girl. He's seeking to set her free from at least one of the two bondages that she experiences, one of the two slaveries on which she suffers. We don't know uh, if she was converted because scriptures don't say. Now, she's between two people. She's bookended between two people who do come to saving faith. So that leads many to believe that she actually comes to saving faith. Not really sure about all of that. 
But what we should remember is that our enemy, our fight, is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, rulers and authorities, spiritual forces of evil and heavenly places. And therefore, we are to engage in such conflict in his armor, in his mighty power, and not in our own. We are to remember that when we experience this kind of opposition, that we serve the Jesus to whom all authority on heaven and earth has been given. That he who is greater, he who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world. Lest we fear the wrong things. So the enemy continues to oppose the message of Jesus primarily by distorting that message. Secondly, we see that sinners oppose the mission of Jesus through falsehood. You'd think he casts out this unclean spirit and the conflict is over, right? Well, it's not. The threat's removed because we see that it came out, or the, the unclean spirit came out that very hour. Jesus is greater than this unclean spirit, this spirit of divination. Uh, this has, uh, it's nothing like what we see in movies, like The Exorcist, where there's this great struggle and battle, you know, and uh, may the name of Christ compel you, and the power of Christ I compel you, and, and the, you know, the head spins around and all kinds of bad things happen. Um, it's not like that. It's not like when the seven sons of Sceva tried to cast out, uh, a, a demon in the name of uh, Jesus whom Paul preached. <laughs> and they got beat up pretty badly <laughs> because they did not have spiritual authority, so to speak, to be doing this. They didn't know Jesus. And therefore, these demons didn't know them and care about them. What we see <clears throat> is that one... This was, a, in some ways, an uneventful, un-Hollywood-like encounter with the, dino, the non, uh, demonic, if I can pronounce anything correctly today. But on the flip side, something obviously happened. Because her owners immediately recognize something's different. That she is no longer under the power of this spirit of divination. That it has come out with her, and in Luke's very nice parallelism, he notes that their prophets have also gone out. The same word is used in those three instances here. They're gone. Their hope of uh, making money has disappeared with the disappearance of this unclean spirit, and so now they themselves are disturbed. They're angry. They're upset. And as a result, they seize Paul and Silas. And this is why I think perhaps it's uh, more than two people. Uh, because Paul and Silas just didn't, you know, kind of break free and walk off. Uh, there, there may have been a small gang of them, perhaps. But they grab Paul and Silas and they drag them into the marketplace. Now, that's the center of town. That's where all the action happens. 
You know, that, that's where the, the people have their booths to sell their wares. It's also where, uh, some people might be stand, some philosophers might be standing and, uh, giving their philosophy and teaching some people, but it's also where the rulers of the city sat. And so the reason they're going to the marketplace is one, to stir up a crowd, and two, to get to the rulers to make a judgment upon this. They want the local authorities to punish these evangelists. Now, when they get there, of course, they don't mention the exorcism at all. They don't mention what actually happened. They didn't say that, uh, you know, I got this slave girl, and she has a, a spirit of divination. She has the power of divination, and, and these guys took it from her. That's never mentioned, at least in the summary that we have here in Acts. Okay? So it isn't, uh, they, they don't bring up this, we've been robbed from their own perspective. The first thing that is mentioned is, these men are Jews. Now, this is not simply a factually correct statement. It is a loaded statement. Because it is playing on the common anti-Jewish sentiments of people in that part of the world. If this was happening today, we'd talk about it perhaps in the, the, the phraseology of hate speech or something like that. But they're stirring up trouble against these men because they're Jewish. Perhaps similar to... Uh, Maybe what was going through the mind of that manager of the Starbucks in Philadelphia when he called the police about the two men who'd been there for too long and hadn't bought anything yet. Because they're black. Stirring up hatred and antipathy, fear, similar to what these slave owners were doing. So these men are Jews... And they're disturbing our city. Now, it talks about how they're throwing it into a state of confusion. What's interesting here is they're not disturbing the city. (laughs) Clearly, Paul and Silas disturbed these men. But most of the city was blissfully unaware of this whole controversy until they got the whole mob mentality kind of stirred up. These guys are Jews. Okay? The thing that was, what was really throwing people into confusion within uh, Philippi was the spirit of divination. That's what was confusing people. That was causing the confusion. That was causing the disturbance because this girl was following them around, yelling this as loud as everyone can hear. She was the source of the disturbance. Paul and Silas ceased the disturbance, but they are accused of creating a disturbance, and so they're being lied about. Their background is being exaggerated for uh, per- political purposes, so to speak, and now they're being lied about. They continue 
The third charge, essentially, is they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans. And so there's kind of two aspects to this. Romans, of course, there was the official, there were the official sanctioned religions that you could practice within Rome. And Judaism was one of those permitted, they called them superstitions. Okay? Because it was not, from their perspective, the true worship of the emperor, but it was a permitted superstition, okay, in their pluralistic society. But not all of the religions were, were legitimate superstitions. And so, in as much as Romans understood Christianity as a form of Judaism, it was okay, but if they saw it as something else, it wasn't. So they're pointing out that these men are holding to because they're talking about Jesus the Messiah, they're holding to an illegal superstition or an illegal religion within Rome. But they're also kind of, I think, pointing out this whole idea of Roman pride. Because remember, this is a Roman colony. We're all about Rome here. Rome matters. How could we, as good Romans, fall for these lies of these two men. These are Jews who are violating, I can't even speak this morning, Uh, they're violating our values. And as Romans, our values are the best. We will sometimes experience this opposition, this clash of values. For me, that was a large part of this last election. Because we had the Democratic candidate saying to the church, you're going to have to change your views when I win. She was not going to permit the church to have its own values. And she's similar to these guys stirring up a riot in the midst of Philippi. And so we see that the crowds begin to join in the attack. They're stirred up. The riot is on the verge of breaking out, okay, because of what these, uh, because of these lies that the slave owners have told. They probably were not remembering in the, in this moment, Matthew 5, which says, uh, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. They probably weren't thinking of that. Uh, blessing of Jesus at this very moment. But maybe they were. Maybe they are uh, better off than I am. But what we have to see, what we have to recognize, is that Christianity threatens people because Christianity threatens the status quo. Christianity, in this case, threatened their greed. Their capacity to make money off of this unclean spirit that possessed this girl. Okay? This is not really about justice. And many of the arguments that are brought up against Christianity are not really about justice. They're about the fear that Christianity will rob me of something I hold near and dear. It's about Values, ethical uh, stances. 
And because they don't want their ethical standards challenged, they want to be free to participate in what we understand to be sin, they will therefore attack people who are Christians. They want to protect themselves. They want to protect their lifestyle from the call of the gospel. And so they lie about Jesus and they lie about his people. We see this all the time. Saw a nice meme the other day on Facebook talking about how we want to kill homosexuals. Now, while I'm sure that that if you scoured the world, uh, you could find some Christians who actually think that. But I have never heard an actual Christian say that. <laughs> because we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. One who, Jesus who sets people free from all kinds of life-dominating sins, just like that one. And so we're to offer them hope, mercy, grace, not a rock. And so to think that we do offer only a rock is to misrepresent who we are because you found a passage in a book and you took it out of context. Granted, that book is the Bible, but it's taken out of context. So, people continue to oppose the mission of Jesus by telling lies about us and about our beliefs. We saw it all the time in the early church. They're cannibals. They commit incest because they have love feasts. Take take everything out of context. Thirdly, we see that governments oppress the messengers of Jesus. You see, these rulers, these magistrates who are there in the marketplace, they hear these charges, but we don't see any instance of them trying to verify the charges. They've forgotten Proverbs 18, 17. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Okay, they wouldn't be familiar with Proverbs 18. <laughs> but they've probably heard something similar to it, like um, it's like a dime. Every, side, every, every story has two sides. You know? They don't listen. They don't, ex- they don't examine these two men and say, uh, what has gone on? What have you done? How are you stirring this up? What, what superstitions are you teaching? They never ask these questions. They, suffering from the fear of man, just go along with everything because they don't want to riot. They're concerned with order. They're not concerned with truth. They're stirred up just like everyone else, and so they're not asking the questions that need to be asked. They're carried along by this spirit of rebellion. So instead of asking questions and and, uh, ascertaining the truth of the matter, they tore the garments off them and beat them with rods. They have Paul and Silas stripped and beaten. Now, let us remember that Jesus knows what it was like to be stripped and beaten. In other words, they worship a God who understands what it's like to be stripped and beaten. They have a God who empathizes 
a God who stands beside them, a God who has compassion upon them. Jesus knows what it's like to be condemned, condemned to death on the basis of lies. We see here in one of many instances the fulfillment of the vision that was given to Ananias. If you remember, right after Paul's vision of Jesus on the road to Damascus, uh, Jesus is, uh, sorry, Paul is blinded and Jesus appears to this man, Ananias. And he tells Ananias to go and to pray over Paul and to baptize Paul. And Ananias, of course, doesn't want to go because Paul's the guy that's been persecuting the church and he doesn't want to be thrown in prison by Paul. Okay? And Jesus says, among other things, to this man, Ananias, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And so this is one of the instances where Paul is going to suffer for the sake of Jesus and his name. In uh, 1 Corinthians 11, Paul talks about this in a different way. He says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. So the thirty-nine lashes from a whip, from the Jews he received it five times. In other words, his back was a mass of scar tissue for the sake of Jesus. Paul continues, three times I was beaten with rods. This is one of the three times that Paul was beaten with rods. Batons, basically. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, and a day I was adrift at sea. Paul would understand how much he would suffer for the name of Jesus. Unfortunately, I think, I suspect we don't understand how much that we might suffer for the name of Jesus. There may be times when we are unjustly punished by governmental authorities or bosses. Right now, Fort Bragg, North Carolina, there's a chaplain to the special forces who exercised his constitutional rights, followed the processes of the U.S. military, and submitted to his endorsing agency, and yet he's now been charged because he didn't fulfill an agenda and violated values of others, even though he was supposed to have guaranteed protection from that. So this charge is serious enough that Paul and Silas were beaten with rods, probably within an inch of their lives, but also for them to be tossed in jail. The jailers then were either slaves of the city or ex-soldiers. So probably, possibly a a Roman soldier who had uh, timed out of the military, had nothing better to do, and let's become a jailer. I can know how to do that. I can keep people. I can beat people. 
And so they are placed in the innermost prison, the most secure part of the prison, and instead of getting um, nice rags to clean up their wounds, they're just given stalks for their feet so they can't run away. They're already in the midst of the middle of the prison. <laughs> they're already beaten badly. They're not going anywhere, but still he places them in stalks for their feet. No tender treatment. Battered and bruised. Now confined. By uh, locked doors and stocks on their feet. And so we see that sometimes government employees can reflect the world as an anti-God system that is run by the beast from Revelation 13. This beast which arose from the water and it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. That's an earthly reality that we don't often think, want to think about. And yet there it is. The devil, the flesh, and the world oppose the gospel everywhere. This is not something that's confined to the place of Philippi. Jesus and Paul believed that such oppression and opposition was ordinary. We see in John 15, If the world hates you, know that it was hated me before it hated you. <laughs> the source of its hatred for you is its Hatred for me, Jesus says. We see in Philippians chapter 1, Paul refers back to this when he says, For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had. And so he's referring to this particular instance. You saw I had this, and now here I still have, referring to his present incarceration for the gospel when he writes the letter to the Philippians. So Jesus and Paul understand persecution as an important part of bearing testimony, a part that we want nothing of, and yet may be granted or appointed unto us. And if it does get appointed to us, we have to remember those promises that have been given to us. That He is with us, even to the end of the age. That all power and authority has been given to Him. And that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Because while they condemn us, God has pardoned us or justified us through His Son, whom He did not spare, but gave Him for us all. Those are the things that we need to remember. We need to remember, in other words, who we serve. We need to remember that the persecution we may experience is temporary, however painful it may be. But that persecution is not a final word. Because Jesus will say, Arise, my church, arise. And though they have slayed us, slain us, they have not destroyed us. But the great reversal will take place. And the wicked men will be overcome. And the people who belong to Jesus will be like that green olive tree that grows and prospers forever, bearing much fruit.
So the initial success of the gospel in Philippi was met with pushback by the devil, the flesh, and the world. Wherever the gospel makes inroads, wherever it makes progress, it should expect similar pushback. The gospel will be distorted. Jesus' servants will be lied about. And his servants will suffer for his sake. Don't be surprised if you experience similar suffering. But remember that you serve Jesus who suffered in the flesh in order to bring you back to God. Jesus, who now has been given all power and all authority. Jesus, who will raise all of His faithful people from the dead. That your suffering really is about Jesus and for Jesus. It's not about you and for you. Let's pray. Father, a hard word this morning. We kind of wish that we could take some of these passages out of the Scriptures, but they are meant for our encouragement, for our instruction, so that we might have endurance and we might have hope. And so produce that in us. Father, help us to be clear about the Gospel. Help us to be clear about Jesus. Help us to not give in to the fear of man that would cause us to be unclear. Help us not to shrink back in the face of opposition. Father, when we go and we knock on doors, not every face will be a welcoming face. But help us to persevere. Help us to be clear. Help us to love even when we encounter opposition. Work that in us because it's not something we can do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.